Hello, and welcome to Looks Unfamiliar, the show that remembers that the original Cadbury's Mint Crisp bars that were only available in those weird vending machines you used to get on station platforms that you had to pull a drawer out, had a big warning on them saying, this is a vending bar only. I'm not sure if that was actually legally enforceable. I'm Tim Worthington, and joining me today to talk about some of the things that he remembers that nobody else ever seemed to is comedian, musician, actor, writer... I mean, I always say just about everything else, but yeah, just about everything else, Mitch Ben. Mitch, what you're to, where can we find it? Ah, I am, in the immortal words of Candy, on the road again. After, yes, many, many years away, it seems. I'm currently touring all dates at MitchBen.com. I've just got back from up north, and rather maddeningly, tomorrow I'm going back up north, because that's the kind of geographical coherence that my tours <laughs> tend to revel in. I was in Halifax on Saturday, no, Friday, and then I had a gig in London on Sunday, and now I've got a gig in Harrogate on Tuesday, which, as you know, is about 20 minutes away from Halifax. But never mind. And then that's going to stagger on right until the new year. That's going to be my primary occupation up till then. And then I'm going to try and get my next book finished, which is much delayed, but I think I'm going to try and unbound it. I think I might try and do that because it's eligible for that. Because as those of you who've been sort of following my adventures will know, I sort of managed to relaunch and complete my sci-fi trilogy the terror trilogy last year one of the problems that i ran into with trying to get it all started again is unbound which is how a lot of friends of mine are getting books published but they won't reprint anything and obviously in the case of the trilogy the first two books have been in print previously so they wouldn't touch those so that wouldn't have been any good so that wasn't really available to me that time around but it would be available for this one because this is a completely new one so i'll certainly if that's the way i go i will be banging that drum extremely loudly as you can imagine so you We'll all get to hear about that. Okay, well, your first choice is to show that if they kind of rebooted it now, you might actually be able to plug the Unbound publication on. <laughs> I don't really know how to explain this, so here's a clip. And while he was searching through his pockets, Mrs. Duff returned. There's a young woman at the door, sir. Tell her to go away. And she says she wants elocution lessons. Oh, well, in that case, send her in immediately. Oh, yes, sir. And she showed in a gawky girl wearing a large hat with feathers on it. Now then, which one of you gents is Professor Huggins? I am. Well, I want you to learn me how to talk like a lady. I've got the money to pay for it and all. And she rattled a very dilapidated handbag. By Jove, Dickering, what a challenge. I'll wager that in six months I could pass this gutter snipe off as a duchess. Never. I could. I could even get her a job as a television newsreader, which requires even better English. Damn. Ooh. But Huggins, whatever would her father say? Oh, he won't care. My old man's a dustman. And even as she spoke, a burly individual wearing a dustman's hat came striding into the room. Afternoon, gents all. I've come to collect me daughter Florrie. Her what ought to be back home cooking a kipper for her poor old dad's tea. Well, I ain't coming, see, so buzzle. If she's not out of here in five minutes, I'll call the police, so help me. <laughs> like it. Five minutes, gents all. And he felt in his waistcoat pocket for his watch. Hello, hello, it's gone. What else? My silver watch given to me for 30 years' service on the British Broadcasting Corporation dust cart. Well, that's a coincidence, because I seem to have lost a silver cigar case. Now, and I lost me handbag, and I know I had it when I come in. How extraordinary. It seems we have a pickpocket in our midst. Now, what we all need <laughs> is a nice cup of tea from a silver teapot. How lucky I gave it a good polish only this morning. But as she left the room, I have a notion. <laughs> had a notion. Okay, the gentleman turning his deerstalker 90 degrees and saying that he'd had a notion there was Bernard Cribbins. 
Mitch, nobody talked about this. What was it? Is this Star Turn? It is Star Turn. Oh, as we'll come back to Star Turn Challenge. Well, Star Turn Challenge has completely eluded my memory. I remember... Everybody remembers Give Us a Clue. Oh, certainly everybody from our sort of, you know, generation and older remembers Give Us a Clue, which is sort of primetime ITV evening celebrity-led game show in which they basically just played charades. That's all it was. It was celebs playing charades. And the two things I remember thinking when Give Us a Clue started, the two things I remember thinking was, one, they've nicked Grange Hill's theme tune <laughs> because... I didn't know about library music at the time. It's actually weird thing is it's a different take. Yeah, it's, it's a, a different arrangement. different version, yeah. Yeah. Also, I remember thinking, this is just ripped off from Star Turn. And everybody has forgotten Star Turn. Give us a clue, has completely supplanted it in the popular consciousness. Star Turn, I seem to recall, was similar kind of format in that you had guest celebs. You're right, Bernie Cribbins was the host. And this did not come up when he died a few months ago. There were many, many heartfelt tributes because, well, let's face it, Bernie Cribbins was somebody I think we were all rather hoping was going to live forever, but he didn't. I met him a couple of times. He was absolutely wonderful. But yeah, this warranted no mention whatsoever. But it was similar kind of format. I seem to recall it was guest celebs, and I think they may even have been on like two opposing teams, much as they were with Give Us a Clue. But the charades was just one round, wasn't it? Charades was just one round, and the rest of it was literally like party games, as I recall. It was celebrities sitting around playing party games. So this, again, this is a dim glimmer in the darkest recesses of my memory. So my main memory of Star Turn, oddly enough, is a kind of almost a reactive memory to thinking, why have ITV ripped this off and given it Grange Hill's theme tune? But it's odd, yeah, the, the thing which, to my mind, was the inferior knockoff is the one that survives in the popular consciousness. And the original has been completely lost to the point where didn't even warrant to mention any, any of Bernie Cribbins' obits. Absolutely, and you are right, it was very similar, albeit with more party games in. But I mentioned there were Star Turn challenges. Well, what actually happened was, as you mentioned, there were two teams. And when it was just Star Turn, it would be kind of like it was on the adventure game. It would be three people associated with light entertainment or children's yeah. television television you know just bundled into well six people technically into two teams when it was star turn challenge it would be teams from a franchise or a program like, right. like you know, the 70s to glam things up they would say everything was on ice for the christmas special <laughs> yeah. this was the challenge was it was things like you get the carry on stars versus the news which i'd love to see right. that wow. the cast of angels versus swap shop just a minute versus tomorrow's world which is like a bit high ground for children's bbc or the goodies versus the live birds which i think is the one that's the most evidence of out there but yeah that was it they basically just they do this kind of smack down. That's bizarre. You see, I completely forgot about Sturton Channels because obviously when I suggested this, I did what you do, which is have a look on YouTube and see how much of it's up there. But of course, Sturton is such a vague title. It's a very difficult thing to search these days. This is something that we've come up against before. You remember we were talking about the 54321 biscuits and that they were almost impossible to Google because how do you Google 54321 and get a biscuit? You know, it could be anything. Well, I think one of the reasons why this isn't well remembered is that, you know, Give Us a Clue is quite a good name. And Star Turn isn't. It reminds me of the way, a little bit later, but around the same time, people don't seem to notice when Adam Ant got really famous, his songs were all called after popular phrases. You know, whether it was Stand and Deliver, Dog Eat Dog, Puss in Boots and so on. And, you know, Give Us a Clue 
is quite a common phrase. Star turn. Where would you hear anyone say that apart from maybe, maybe a school end of year show or something? It doesn't really imprint itself in the memory in the same way. I think you're absolutely right. It's not as memorable a title and certainly it's not as Googleable a title, which is why I was able to find very, very little of it. I couldn't find anything. I mean, if I'd known to look for Star Turn Challenge, that might have been slightly easier. That gives you a bit more to work with. But this is something that we come up against every now and again, isn't it? We're trying to look up stuff from, you know, from the pre-internet era and it's all got these completely ungoogleable names. Just very short-sighted of previous generations not to come up with names for stuff that can be easily internet searched <laughs> in due course. But yeah, I mean, so my memories of it are fairly dim. I mean, I remember, you know, say so my main memory of it is sort of by comparison with Give Us a Clue, which, you know, came along afterwards, kind of off-stole the format and was a lot more successful. I mean, can you remember what the other rounds were? Because all I can remember is that there were rounds other than charades, but off the top of my head, I can't actually remember what they did in any of them. I think there were kind of wordplay things. Yeah. Sub, I'm sorry, I haven't a clue, really. I think that's the best way. You know, the cast of that were regularly all over it anyway, so it's the sort of thing you would have seen Tim Brooke Taylor on and thought, he's on every week. So it was kind of in that style, really. But you saying you couldn't find much of it. Well, it's one of those unfortunate situations where there's not much of it left to find. Because people have this idea that television companies were only reusing tapes and so on up to about 1972. And it went on longer than that. And there was a very... Yeah, no, yeah. It's hard to get to the bottom of There's a very weird thing in the mid-90s where it appears to be the paperwork blunder, really, where people thought some things had been converted to digital and they hadn't and the funding ran out and so on. But a lot of things like, well, this, for example, Swap Shop, Saturday Superstore, Jack and Ori Playhouse, How Do You Do, which I actually found off uh, some lost episodes of Playboy, Ragtime. There are gaps in all of those. Lucky numbers I think there's no complete editions left of. And Star Turn and Star Turn Challenge fare very badly there. There's quite a bit of it missing. Quite I mean, a bit of it gone, yeah. But we are getting towards the age there where people do have as I say off airs of things. I mean, one thing I remember saying was I remember looking at what had gone from Checkers Plays Pop years ago and just saying <laughs> idly on Twitter, oh no I'll never see Matt Bianco doing that comedy routine to sneaking out the back door again. It's obviously because as much as I like them, they weren't the most exciting band visually. So they filmed these little <laughs> scenes with the two blokes like sneaking out the back door and Basher kind of looking out the back door seeing they'd knocked over the bin and like shrugging their shoulders to the camera. And within seconds <laughs> of me saying that, somebody said I've got an off air of it. And they wow. uploaded that edition of Checkers Plays Pop to YouTube. So this stuff is probably out there. I don't know who would have Star Turn and Star Turn Challenge apart from people who were on it, but it's no, very exactly likely that they viewing. do. I mean, the other reason, you know, this is something else that you and I have discussed before is something it might have fallen victim to is, I mean, I don't remember it being repeated, but as you know, I mean, what screws up a lot of these things is when the contributors have been signed off, you know, whatever, you know, waivers and contracts they've signed in order to allow the contributions to be used, generally permitted the broadcaster to broadcasted yeah. three times and there's also the additional complication with this that some gentlemen who were involved would yeah. not be welcome in, you know no, this is true, these yeah, days. Yeah. exactly yeah yeah so i mean you probably you'd have a job with the you know the complete blu-ray re-release if that were ever <laughs> an option yeah much as you know we're not getting nearly as much of top of the pops as we thought we were going to when they started the repeats like about 14 years ago and we all know why but yeah you're right that would not help either but i think it's you know again this is stuff that's probably not exactly appointment tv so and it was also a long time before 
universal, you know, what's say universal or near universal or widespread home video adoption. I think we're talking about sort of 75, 76, maybe even. Is that, is that about when it was? Because I couldn't find a Wikipedia page for it or anything. Yeah, it went on until about 1981, but even that I am unclear on. Right, right. Well, that's probably slightly later then because I don't recall it lasting for very long. So it's probably more likely to start at about 77. I think it was 76, actually. But again, it's almost impossible to track down. You try looking even on BBC Genome for Star Turn. Mm. You get a million kind of like late 50s radio shows. Yeah, exactly. This is it. The trouble, the word is it's so hard to search. It's so hard to find anything about it. But one kind of gets the feeling that it's something that was sort of not fondly remembered within the corporation because you'd think they'd be doing a bit more to sort of, you know, not preserve its legacy, not to sound anything so pompous, but just to commemorate it in any way. It's almost as if, you know, the official version of events now is, yes, there was a celebrity charade show on TV and it was called Give Us a Clue. And that's the only one. You know, that's the only celebrity. There was no other celebrity charade show on British TV before Give Us a Clue. It kind of feels like it's been a bit Winston Smith, but that is entirely possible that it's just that's what happens when there's no particular reason to preserve the memory of something. It's a bit like we were talking about, do you remember about the two Rihannas? That there was a British soul singer called Rihanna, spelt differently. Oh, bring it back to those two could do a starter challenge again. Yeah, Rihanna yeah. versus Rihanna, just slightly Rihanna versus spelling. Rihanna, yes, yeah. have a Rihanna off. Yeah, <laughs> that there was a British soul singer called Rihanna spelt differently, who had a couple of hit records and then was completely obliterated from the popular consciousness by Rihanna of Umbrella fame. And maybe it's almost a bit like this. Maybe the thing is there are people who actually have memories of Star Turn who think they're remembering Give Us a Clue because that's the one everybody remembers. So, you know, when they think about, yeah, you know, I remember some time on TV when Lionel Blair had to mind the guns of Navarone and everybody goes, you know, oh, that'll be good. You know, and maybe it wasn't. Maybe it was Star Turn. It could be that because, you know, again, when something comes along that kind of supplants it that it completely supplants it not just in the present as it were but in the past as well okay we're moving on to your next choice now who is a character who i mean the actor who played him could easily have turned up on star turn challenge when it was grange hill versus i don't know god's wonderful railway or something but i would not have liked to have been on the opposing team to him oi you look where you're going you're an idiot lad Mr. X, come here! Wait here. Yes, Mr. Baxter. Slip on the wet floor, did you? Okay, from Grange Hill Series 4, 1981, that's Bullock Baxter dealing with a rogue teacher in his own inimitable fashion. Mitch... Who was Mr. Hicks? This is one of the few memories I've got of Grange Hill. I was not an assiduous Grange Hill viewer. I used to dip in and out of it. Which is weird because it was exactly my era. You know, 1981 was the year that I finished primary school and went to grammar school. You know, so it was kind of entirely my era. But it's one of the few memories I remember. It's because it was kind of a brave thing they did, I suppose. Because they actually had an evil teacher. And I often wonder how this went down in the kind of, you know, the teaching community. You know, because Bullock Baxter, everybody remembers, bald-headed, shouting PE teacher. And he was, you know, a magnificently rendered creation. He was sort of, you know, a perfectly rendered PE teacher. He's kind of every PE teacher he ever had and none. But the thing about Bullock Baxter, and I think actually about pretty much all the teaching staff in Grange Hill, was that he was a fundamentally decent guy, even if he was a bad-tempered old bastard. He was a fundamentally decent guy. And 
And then they introduced a character called Mr. Hicks. And I even remember his name as Mr. Hicks. I remember his name was Mr. Hicks. And he was played by Paul, no, not the mind probe, Jericho. <laughs> <laughs> Which is, yeah, now all the Doctor Who fans now instantly know who I'm talking about. He turned up as the Castellan of Gallifrey in a couple of 1980s stories and was last seen being dragged off to be interrogated, shouting, no, not the mind probe, which is just one of the most classic <laughs> science fiction moments. But Mr. Hicks was a kind of supply PE teacher who was a genuine sadist who used to sort of torment, bully, and occasionally physically assault the pupils. And they were all in absolute terror of him. Did somebody actually manage to grass him out to Bullet Baxter? I think one of the kids actually had the bravery to grass Mr. Hicks out the Bullet Baxter. But certainly, Bullet Baxter follows him to a gym class and sees him, like, shoving kids over and then calls him into the equipment room and then punches him on his ass. <laughs> And that's right, I remember the line, he said, that's right, because some kid that Mr. Hicks had slapped had actually ended up injured, and the official story was he slipped on the wet floor of the swimming pool, and when Bullet Baxter punches his lights out, he says to his prone body in the equipment room, slip on the wet floor, did we? <laughs> That's one of my few concrete memories of Grange Hill. I remember thinking it was quite an edgy story and quite a brave story to actually go, actually, you know what? No, there are some members of the teaching profession who are sadistic pricks who've gotten into it for all the wrong bloody reasons and need to be removed from it as quickly as possible. I often wonder how that would have gone because I know Grange Hill was, it's kind of difficult, you know, from our point of view because we were kind of, you know, we were its intended audience. We were kind of immersed in everything, but I'm sure, you know, I'm aware kind of retrospectively of, of a lot of the controversy surrounding it, the fact that, you know, it was considered, you know, the kids are all a bit unruly, although, you know, it's immortalised and the young ones are the only kids in Britain who never said fuck. I know that there was a bit of controversy surrounding Grange Hill as, as it all being a bit bleak and edgy, but I've often wondered how that scenario, that story in particular was received, that rather than the teacher, you know, like Bull and Baxter, he's a grumpy old bastard, but he's a decent guy. Actually having a teacher who's just played evil turn up at the school did that kick up a lot of dust at the time well i can actually give some personal perspective on that because my mother taught for a very long time and was a very feared teacher in right a really tough comprehensive in i'm waiting for your reaction now in speak in liverpool all right fair enough <laughs> yeah, so, <laughs> yeah. so we were always allowed to watch grange hill because in her view in kind of a you know not a kind of my life is hell way but she thought it was a very sanitized view of what actually went on in the kind of yeah. schools it was trying to ape and she always appreciated the fact that it did show the human side to the teachers because I remember yes. this episode particularly well because I could tell because she used to you know watch it if she was around when it was on that it ends with Bullet Baxter and Mrs. McCluskey talking about how if they hadn't been alerted to Mr. Hicks in time yeah the wider world would have got hold of it and they would have been the ones in trouble yes. because of him and you know that's quite an interesting thing because not only is it you know showing that teachers are human it's also kind of of a comment on the way Grange Hill was received by the wider world at that point because for all the ridiculousness he's come out with since Phil Redmond at the time was doing something really daring and was never backing down. You know, he had an no. absolute control of the show. He was steering in the right direction. Unfortunately, yeah. that's made him think since then that he is right all the time. I mean, he even still goes on yeah. about now. Mentioning the Grange Hill theme earlier, that apparently he wrote one that the production team said, 
that's not really going to work. And in his autobiography, he's still quite annoyed about that. And the main thing everyone remembers about Grange Hill is Chicken Man, Alan Hawkshaw's theme, along with the sausage on the fork. You know, is that what it's say, called? Yeah, is it, that what, is it, that it what is the theme is called? Chicken Man, yes. Yeah. Chicken Man, yeah. But, you know, without that, you can't really complain about a theme that emblematic, I don't think. That's brilliant. And again, much as with when they moved Top of the Pops to Friday, it was when they came up with the new theme to the Grey Jill that kind of says, this is a show that's lost confidence in itself. I've often wondered how that went down because I think one of the things that Grange Hill did do is that it humanised everybody. It presented the teachers as fallible and for the most part trying to do their best. I remember thinking that was pretty good and pretty well-intentioned, the idea that the, you know, the relationship between the teachers and the pupils wasn't always adversarial and that the, you know, the school functioned best when it wasn't. That was the one time I remember thinking, wow, they've actually got an evil teacher. Not just one that the kids don't like for kind of kids' reasons, you know, because you have all kinds of reasons for not liking your teacher, but they tend to be sort of kid reasons. They're not necessarily sort of empirically valid reasons. But no, this one was an actual asshole. And I've not heard it brought up much. You know, people remember bits about, you know, obviously they remember Zamo smackhead thing. They remember Danny Kendall turning up dead in the car. And they remember all the real jaw-dropper moments. But that, for me, was a real jaw-dropper moment of actually bringing in a character who's actually evil and then the teachers crediting the kids with exposing him. That's one of the most memorable moments from Grand Jill as far as I'm concerned. It's not one that gets brought up very often. No, and Series 4 had quite a few. I mean, you say bringing the evil characters. That was the series mm-hmm. where they kind of... The original school bully, Booger Benson, it was basically just... Yeah. It was just, he's a nut job. That's all there was yeah. to him. Yeah. He was kind of phased out and replaced with Gripper Stepson, which was obviously was yeah. setting up in the next series when he turned out to be a racist and the hard seat kid Ranveer Singh started and it became... Yeah. You know, there is actually that episode where they're fighting each other with chairs nicked from the cafeteria. You no, know, so he yeah. was going towards that. This is a series with the school action group who were a kind of woke militant lefty alliance of people. I remember who them, yes. Would yeah. terrify Dominic Raab in his sleep, I think. Yes. <laughs> I think this was the series were there was the episode where a load of kids got thrown off a bus and they walked right. home across the common and a man asked them to help look for his dog and then it comes right. in later on Tucker had the wrong fur so also got thrown off the bus and some of them came <laughs> running up to say Tucker help you know this younger boy's gone with a man to look for his dog and okay. so you know yeah. Tucker yeah. chased this you know the implication was that something very 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 untoward was going to happen yeah. to this kid unless we can find him yeah you know there were all kinds of hard things at the same time they really upped the ante with the comedy thing because this is when Pogo Patterson really started it's when he broke a table pretending to be Superman and that sort of thing so they got that balance right and also it was the year of the Christmas special which was written by a Blue Peter competition winner I mean I assume Bill Redman probably moved a few words around and so on but that was a famous thing about some kid watching wrote a quite hard-hitting storyline about some proper thugs turned up and tried to steal the equipment at the school disco while the teachers uh-huh. were distracted dealing with something else, it was up to an unlikely alliance of Tucker and Doyle stood up to them. <laughs> that felt really hard-hitting, because that was unprotected kids on their mm-hmm. own, faced with actual criminality. And the usual children's BBC thing was, plucky youngsters, they get their magnifying glasses out, and then they go to the police like they should do. And no, it was a no. bit like, help, what's happening? Exactly. I mean, that was, it. It was one of the things about Grange Hill, is one of the few times that kids in kids' TV felt and acted like kids, or like kids that we might possibly have known. I think that in and of itself made it challenging, that it sort of 
depicted, you know, teenagers and preteens, almost how they were, even in the 70s, the way, you know, kids and TV were still presented in this rather sort of E. Nesbitt kind of way, you know what I mean? And actually seeing kids who were recognizable from, okay, you and I are at the other end of the country, but it was still the same, you know, we still knew people like that, we still knew kids like that, you know. I mean, certainly the great punch of the air moment is when everyone turns on gripper steps and there's just nothing he can do. You realize that bullies essentially only really bully by consent. Bullies only really get to bully you if you allow them to and if, you know, if everybody rejects it then it has to stop and that was a real punch the air moment, I remember. Yeah, you wonder whether something like that would get commission now but then tv is just so completely fragmented now that you think yeah something like that probably would get commission but probably not on the bbc and probably not at like you know half past four in the afternoon you know something it would probably would get commissioned but you know it might be tucked away on one of the streaming services or somewhere you know and also people wouldn't really notice it in the same way because as you alluded to there isn't that kind of shared sense of communal viewing i mean literally in those days with grain chill if you didn't see it that was it i think they occasionally might have done some summer repeats but you know not very often well not really because the thing about Grange Hill is while nobody ever used this word to describe it at the time it was basically a soap opera for school kids it was kind of EastEnders for 12 year olds it functioned at least as much as a soap as it did as a drama and of course it had that thing of allowing the characters to age as they did so that each new season I think something which they ultimately I guess sort of stole for Buffy and indeed the Harry Potter books that was based around an academic year so a new series would begin usually in the autumn and there'd be a whole bunch of new 11 year olds turning up and all you know last year's 11 year olds are now 12 you know and so the ones I think like Tucker's generation I think we got to see them go all the way through school up to their O levels so you know the characters were aging at the same rate you were yes and that's why you know recently there was a lot of talk about a potential new Grange Hill film yeah and I was asked about it on the radio I was asked what do you think it should do yeah and my point was it shouldn't matter what I think or anyone who used to watch it thinks yeah. it is for the kids who are at school at that age at the moment yeah. and I would be very very concerned about somebody who was saying this new series of Grange Hill isn't for me and I'm in my 40s exactly yeah no you're absolutely right but also I mean to me I mean a film of Grange Hill makes no sense whatsoever because the whole reason that it worked was the fact that it was ongoing just like school is you know there wasn't a beginning and a middle and an end to Grange Hill certain specific plot lines like evil Mr. Hicks would play themselves out but it was never building up to any kind of finale you know there wasn't like a a plot arc it was just this ongoing thing you just kept going in day after day and various things would happen to you so that's why in a weird kind of way it felt like school you could write a movie set in a comprehensive school and you could call it Grange Hill if you wanted to but I don't think that's what Grange Hill was by all means, make a movie about a bunch of kids in a comprehensive school. And if you want to call it Grange Hill, go ahead. That's not what Grange Hill was. Grange Hill was, by definition, to me, an ongoing thing. And I think, as you said, the main reason, if people do remember Mr. Hicks, that they do remember was he was just a teacher who was evil. Whereas later on, famously, the most strict teacher was Mr. Bronson. But you got to see his human side as well, particularly when, I can't relate the whole plot now, but Zamo, when he was desperate for money to buy heroin, stole Roland's alarm clock and Roland was 
wasn't up in time for the French oral exam. Mr. Bronson was pleading with the examiner, you know, please, please stay five minutes longer. This boy is excellent at French. There must be a problem. He must be on his way. You know, so you got that. Whereas this guy just turned up, smacked kids about and then was literally booted off frames. Oh, yeah. Bronson was terrifying. But again, he was a decent guy. Bullet Baxter was terrifying, but he was a fundamentally decent guy. You know, but also they were sort of scary because the show allowed you to see. Because teachers can be scary, even if they're fundamentally decent people, when seen from the point of view of the much younger, smaller people who are essentially at their mercy. I think one of the things that Grange Hill got right was, if you like, the gays, if you like, G-A-Z-E, the teen and preteen gays it got right, as in the POV, as in the point of view. You know, people talk about the male gays and the female gays where attractiveness is concerned. It got the teenage and pre-teenage gays right. It felt like you were seeing it from their point of view when you were being shown it from their point of view. And then occasionally you would dip into the staff room and you'd see it from the alternate point of view. And that's when you realize that these are all fundamentally decent people. But then you go back out and seeing it from the kids' point of view. And the teachers are all intimidating, or a lot of them are intimidating because it's just, you know, the dynamic of the situation is an intimidating dynamic whether the teachers mean it to be so or not that's one of the things that it really captured i think okay we're moving on to your next choice now which is something that i'm not convinced got footballers point of view entirely right and welcome to snatch of the day and we'll kick off with a highlight from today's play in piccadilly tell me where is it impossible to snatch a nudist colony Okay, no idea what I used there because at the time of recording I could not find the original advert for this so I'll probably use Sunderland the back in the first division or something so <laughs> Parker Toy Stroke Palatoy Toy Striker what was this? My parents had a weird thing of never getting me the obvious thing for Christmas or birthdays I think I mentioned before that while I did eventually get an action man when I was about 8 or 9 years old previous to that I had a cowboy figure who was sold in this country under the name cowboy kid but was a rebadged American toy called Johnny West and he was like really solid and heavy and substantial but you could dress him up in Action Man stuff and give him Action Man accessories so I used to get all these Action Man accessories for a doll that wasn't Action Man you know that was kind of indignant and this was what I guess I had instead of Sabutio you talk about you know tabletop football games particularly from the 70s that everybody thinks of Sabutio well this was like a Sabutio alternative and it was slightly more technically complex but I really liked it the weird thing is I remember getting this for Christmas but I seem to recall getting it for Christmas more than once whether that means I broke the first one I had which would have taken quite a lot of effort because it would have consisted of about 25 individual pieces I think it's more likely that I got it for Christmas when I was very young and then for a couple of subsequent Christmases I got like additional teams or additional accessories for it because much like with Sabutio, you played it on like this sort of big table-sized board and I think you could add peripherals to it like I think you could add stands and like advertising hoardings and sort of things to make the football ground feel more real the difference was Sabutio, everybody remembers flick to kick in Sabutio, you get these little static figures with their arms by the sides and they're on a kind of hemispherical weighted base and the way you would play the game is you had this outsized ball that was sort of half the size of the players and 
and that you would flick with your fingers these players and try and flick them over to the ball with enough force that they hit the ball and then move the ball. Striker, the figures are bigger. They're about an inch, inch and a half tall, but they are articulated and they are on a base. They're standing on one leg with the other leg drawn back in about to kick position. And the base that they're standing on has a kind of gap in front of the leg that's drawn back. And the idea is the ball itself was only small. It was kind of in proportion to the figures. And what you had to try and do was hit the ball into that slot. And then if you press down on these figures' heads, that leg kicked the ball. So they were like little articulated figures. And the idea was, I think you position them so that you could play the ball pass it into each other's stands and try and get it again that would have required a degree of accuracy so I'm guessing there was probably a bit of leeway with regards to moving the figures about and the other thing I remember and I think it may even have had this in common with Subutio was that the goalie was operated by means of a kind of rod that went through the goal um but that's pretty much all I remember about this. I mean, there is actually one page out there, one fan page tracing the history of it, where it seems to tail off in the 80s. It was actually, right. I think, from the early 70s. And they did various editions along the way, including a, quote, Wembley edition for the days when you know, there was an entire lost world behind the word Wembley. It just on its own, it signified so many things that it does not anymore. I think it really never quite came to rival Sabutio properly because the whole thing with that is to me it was a game that involved too much admin that was kind of what people who like football enough to want to play a game that probably recreates it would be interesting because you know they like the league tables they like stats they like you know thinking about strategy and arguing about strategy so Sabutio and Roar like this where this was a little more rough and tumble the thing I remember most about it is the players have really elongated necks like you say and it always made me think of the animated intro to World Forum on Monty Python's Flying Circus where Gilliam's done all the football <laughs> next hitting the ball it doesn't seem to have really caught on and the other thing was it was a bit more I don't know not quite a sellout but you know there was packaged and so on the way Sabutio had that big sort of felt pitch that you rolled out and you, you yeah. brushed to make sure it was down curved with no creases in and this had a similar kind of pitch but mounted on the folding board Yeah, it, it probably did, felt yeah. a bit more like the football game for people who weren't proper football fans I think maybe it was kind of considered as a sort of a lightweight Sabutio or a slightly more apologetic <laughs> version of Sabutio. Sabutio for people who really couldn't be asked with all the attendant flim-flam of Sabutio. But yeah, I just remember it quite fondly because it was the one I had. Because, you know, as you and I have discussed, you know, I'm fairly football agnostic by most people's standards, but I did grow up in Liverpool in the 1970s, so I kind of never really got a choice. It was just kind of there whether you wanted it or not. I think I was about six or seven years old before I realised that not everybody gets to go and watch the team bring all the trophies home this year. Yes! Because <laughs> that was just that an was a Annual, that was just an yeah. annual thing. It was just an annual thing. Let's all go down to Allerton Road and watch the bus go by with all the trophies on. Just did that every year, and it never. It only thing that occurred to me quite later on. Hang on, not everybody gets to do this. Well, sometimes, excitingly, we'll be also going through Egbert Vale as well. So we got yes. we got to do that sometimes as an alternative. <laughs> Lovely little detour for Sammy Lee and company. But the game we had was even 
more rough and tumble than this, which is the official Kenny Dalglish soccer game. Which wow! Is, no, there's very little evidence of out there at all, apart from people on Liverpool forums talking about it. It had, I think it was probably based on an American game, that you know, it was like a hockey game or something. But it had a solid plastic green base, which was about an inch tall, and it looked like, you know, there's always a kid in school who every year, their birthday cake would be a football pitch. Yeah. It looked like that, and it had these kind of two-dimensional players on little cogs on it, where you turned dials. The strikers and someone had their legs, like one leg pointing out. The goalie was in the diving position. And what struck me the most, you know, because basically just threw the ball in and just whacked it about with these sort of rotating players trying to score goals. But being the least interested in football out of all our family, what really, really caught my attention was how much the players all looked like John Craven did in the 70s. <laughs> that exact, you know, that crash helmet hairstyle. They were probably panicking about giant hogweed as well, which he seemed to do quite a lot. <laughs> So it was very odd. It could easily have been the official John Craven soccer game. But I will say, for a celebrity product in the late 70s, it was very well done. It was very well packaged. It had a personalised note from him, which, you know, they often just stuck their name on things and they didn't bother. I wonder if it was locally made. It probably was. But I really do look back at that and think that was something of unusual quality for a quick cash-in, especially to do with a footballer. I think you're right. I think it's a rebadged American ice hockey game. I think I've seen... It's another one of these things that, you know, you get clued up because things turn up on American TV shows. It only dawned on me that the Dennis Fisher TARDIS was a rebadged Mego Star Trek transporter room when I saw them playing with the Mego transporter room on Big Bang Theory because it never made any sense, if you recall. You know, you'd put the Doctor in, spin the top and press the button and then he disappears. That's not how the TARDIS works. That's not what the TARDIS is. So yeah, it made sense when I realised, oh, hang on, it's a rebadged transporter room with a cardboard TARDIS stuck around the outside. You've just given me a outside. great idea. I would love to get a load of those Dennis Fisher TARDISes, get a load of the Tom Bakers, get somebody to make a Dennis Fisher-style Jody, and just send them all to, the, you know, those gentlemen that send me complaints when I'm nice about it. You know, they go, ooh, a TARDIS toy, how exciting. Press the button. Oh, no, he's turned into a woman. <laughs> I mean, it would be a very elaborate and expensive way of putting them in their place, but I don't know, maybe it's warranted. Well, it's true, actually. That's the one time the Dennis Fisher TARDIS would have made sense would have been if they'd re-released it in 81 and packaged it with a Peter Davison figure and that way you know you stuck Tom in spun it and pressed the button and it came out Pete except he would have looked more like Tim Brooke Taylor as rendition yes he would have had Tim Brooke Taylor but yeah given that the Tom Baker actually had Gareth Hunt's head (laughs) yes now people have absolutely no idea just what a big deal the goodies were in the mid 70s it's almost impossible to describe that you know they were not only the biggest show on TV they had hit records in the charts they had books out they had records out you know they had everything they were across everything and it's so weird that partly because of, I think there were difficulties with the rights to get repeats on them for a long time that they sort of fell off the radar as completely as they did when you consider what a big deal they were in their heyday everybody was into the goodies from the age of about four or five upwards is that the same kind of level of I mean is it now the case that an interest in football is just treated as an interest in football because it's easier to get to see you know the strips are probably easier and cheaper to get hold of do kids actually need 
need games based on football now? Or do they just have a football and Sky Sports? Because in the same way, as you know, everyone remembers the Doctor Who target books so fondly because there wasn't Doctor Who on for a lot of the year. Yeah. Was it like yeah. that? Was it like a reenactment thing when it was raining outside, it was outside the football season, here's some football you can do? I don't recall seeing, apart from video games, which is a different matter because I think they're mainly aimed at adults, but yeah. not many kind of football-related tie-in kids entertainment these days. I think that's a very, very good question because, again, it keeps coming back to the thing that we're always bringing up, which is the perpetual presence and the permanent availability of everything. And the fact that this has very much altered the way, you know, for example, nostalgia works. There's a big chunk in my show about that, about nostalgia, you know, isn't what it used to be, literally. It doesn't work the same way. Anything that still exists that hasn't been purged, and obviously we know a lot of it has, basically, right now, if something hasn't been purged, that I could be looking at it in a matter of seconds. But also things like Top of the Pops, you know, again, it lost confidence in itself, moved itself to Friday, which it never should have done, showed an absolutely fundamental misunderstanding of what that show was for, moving it to Fridays. But also, it was the only place you could see pop music on TV. And then you started to get a few alternatives, like the Char Show starting on Channel 4 in the mid-80s and everything. But you've got these very, very, very few occasions to see pop music on TV. And once you get into an era where not only are there, you know, cable channels and freeview channels that show rock videos all day, but people are starting to put them up on YouTube and Vimeo so you can actually see whichever rock video you want to see right now. You know, that reduces the importance of a show like Top of the Pops. It's entirely possible that you're right. Back in the 70s, you got like 45 minutes of football on TV a week and it was the edited highlights that turned up on Match of the Day. The only exceptions to that would be the big cup finals that might be broadcast live, specifically the FA Cup final and the European Cup if there was a British team in the final and only if there was a British team in the final. And that was the only time, and oh, the World Cup, that was the only other time anything got broadcast live. But above and beyond that, if it wasn't a World Cup year, you would get 45 minutes of football on TV a week, so you're quite right. If you were, you know, a big football note, you might well be jonesing for football stuff to do during the week whereas now you know you're quite right there are all the football based console games which are increasingly more and more just like watching a game that you happen to be controlling visually they're almost indistinguishable from the real thing now but yeah I mean, it could just be that the omnipresence of football in popular culture and readily available media means there's less desire to be reproducing it on your tabletop that's a very interesting point well it's funny you should mention top of the pops because for your next choice we've got the one and only appearance on the show by a band who might well have played Striker in between takes recording their debut album.
Okay, as I say, from Top of the Pops in 1979, and number 36 there, it's The Planet with Lines. One of the less remembered hits of the late 70s, I'm saying. Mitch, why do you think that is? This is a band that was heavily championed on Radio City. I got my first radio, I think, for my 10th birthday, and finally had my own radio in my bedroom. And so I became a very, very keen radio listener. So the local stations in Liverpool, which were Radio City, was the independent one, and Radio Merseyside, as a BBC one. I used to listen to them a lot for my pop music and I would also listen to Radio 2 and 4 for comedy and that was basically it. This was a band that was very heavily championed by Radio City because I'm fairly sure they were a Liverpool band and indeed I don't know whether it's on that clip was that Lines we were just listening to. That's the one that everybody remembers. They had another one called Don't Look Down which sounded a bit more sort of Elvis Costello-ish I seem to recall. They sounded a lot like The Police. They were sort Sort of white punky reggae. I'm fairly sure that the BV's on lines there. I think that's Kate Robbins and I think it might even be Kate and her sister. I'm going to have to ask Kate about that next time I see her, whether that was her doing the BV's on lines for the planets, because the time and place is exactly right for that to have been Kate. But yeah, this is a band I know very, very little about them, except that Radio City were really keen on them and pushed them quite heavily. And apart from that water pins on top of the pops, I don't think I ever heard or saw them anywhere else. You get this thing sometimes where bands are being championed by one media outlet and completely ignored by everyone else and the planets seem to be very much beloved of Radio City they used to play them a lot but I don't think I ever even heard them on Radio Merseyside which is the other Liverpool channels they seem to exist they're very much a band of the Aventies this idea that you know the years from like 1979 to 1982 have their own distinct cultural identity it's not the 70s anymore but it's not really the 80s yet either yeah I remember the DJs on Radio City seemed very keen on them and played them a lot they just didn't see any traction anywhere else I don't really know that much about them except that they were from Liverpool and they sounded a bit policey and in the video they're wearing those fighter pilot compression suits that later got turned into the Cyberman costumes in the 80s <laughs> Yeah, I think that's the problem is there's virtually nothing about them out there. And again, completely bloody ungoogleable name. Well, and as well as that, there's the issue of some of them were originally in a more famous Liverpool band called Death School, who ah, didn't okay. do that well commercially, but were very influential. And because of that, they're treated as almost like a footnote to the Death School story, even on John Peel wiki. Now, I assume he must have played them. He probably even had them in session. There is not a link yeah. to the planet saying what they did on this show and it's interesting you mentioned the you know spillover into the 80s because they look as though they're anticipating the way people like landscape would dress you know with hints yes. of eyeliner and the boiler suits and so on but they're not quite there yet no and of course as I've just reminded myself I'm just wondering you know what happens if you Wikipedia the planets and there's a link saying the planets band and it was a classical ensemble put together by Mike, Mike Batt in Bat. 2001 yes. <laughs> so that's what you get if you look from on Wikipedia that's the closest you get they have not really made any kind of lasting impression on the popular consciousness at all which is weird because like I say I mean that record it got a lot of rotations I mean how well have it got on the top of the pops I'm assuming it got into the 40 do we have a chart placing for yes, it number 36 ah so it scraped into the 40 oh that's okay it's better than nothing I suppose yeah I remember that I remember even at the time people saying well this is all a bit police-ish fairly obvious walking on the moon influence and they weren't the only band around at the time with that kind of you know punky white reggae sound that that was sort of 
getting around a lot. And then I remember their next single being called Don't Look Down. And I think I found that on YouTube. And listening back to it, it actually sounds a bit Elvis Costello-ish, which again was not entirely unheard of in those days. We all remember Back of My Hand by the Jags, which might as well be by Elvis Costello. You know, they sound like their time. They're very much of their time. It would be good to know a bit more about them. Maybe I'll try and get older Kate and see if she remembers anything about them because I'm fairly sure that's her. A couple of girls in like air hostess uniforms, isn't it? And I'm fairly sure one of them is Kate and I think the other one might even be Kate's sister. Because like I say, it's exactly the right time and place. Liverpool, about 1980, it's exactly the right time and place for it to be her. So again, this is the curse of the ungoogleable name, isn't it? <laughs> I also noticed that I expected they would have had, you know, the two singles and that was it. They released two albums and loads of singles and that wow. immediately made me think that's a bit like someone like the Corgis. And then when I looked into it, I found they were on the same label as the Corgis, which was Rialto Records, which turns out, as far as I can tell, to have been owned by a management company who were, you know, fed up of how their acts were treated by actual major labels. So they're starting their own label. So then you got, you're rejected on two fronts because I assume this is probably how it went. The majors will want to shun you and use, you know, put pressure on their contacts in the media to shun you because you're trying to beat them at their own game. And the independent labels will be saying, well, you're not really one of us, are you? So that could account for having two acts that nearly broke through that didn't, despite releasing loads of records. Yeah, it's possible. The other th weird thing, of course, is Rialto was the name of the other band I yes. brought up on here. <laughs> <laughs> it's all kind of weirdly tied together, if only through sheer coincidence. No, but you're right, that is possible. They may have fallen between two stools. You're right, been sort of too legit for the indies and too indie for the majors, yeah. There was that interesting thing, though, I just wanted to briefly touch on. You mentioned about how Radio City in Liverpool, and I assume other local radio stations across the UK, would support local acts like that. I mean, Radio Merseyside less so, but there was pure musical sensations with Roger Hill, which, you know, was where people like Frankie Goes to Hollywood very first got played, you know, with, like, demos they've done on tape. Roger Hill. There's a name I've not heard for a while. Roger used to run the Everyman Youth Theatre when I was there. Yes, he did. Yeah, that's right. He was running the Everyman Youth Theatre when I was in the Everyman Youth Theatre. Quite striking guy with a massive mohawk. The weird thing about it is, as far as I can tell, I think I was at the Everyman Youth Theatre about the same time as Daniel Craig, but I have no memory of him being there. Because <laughs> he's only about 18 months older than me, Daniel Craig. So apparently he was at the Everyman Youth. So I think we were probably there at about the same time, but I don't remember him. It's weird. <laughs> you didn't think he would have made more of an impression, but yeah, but no, I was in the Everyman Youth Theatre. So yeah, Roger was very much in charge of all of that. I was in the Playhouse, so you know, traditional ah. local rivalry. <laughs> Absolutely, yes. <laughs> You lot did the message plays and we did the artsy stuff. We did indeed do the message plays, yes. We did indeed do the, pretty much all that was all we did, yeah. Everything was very, very socially conscious, I remember. Well, if anyone has got photos of me with glittery flares and a paisley shirt when we did a Midsummer Night's Dream set in the 60s, please keep them to yourselves. Have a guess who I was when we did the Dream at Edinburgh University. I'm going Go to on, say take you were a probably step. Robin Goodfellow. Now I was bottom, come on. <laughs> Born to play that bloody part, that part was written for me. You kidding me? Ah, uh, you know? well, you see, <laughs> we had the mechanicals redone as kind of Avengers girls, as in ah! Steve and Emma Avengers. Wow, okay. It is astonishing how little acknowledgement of the planets there is out there, though, because you'd think they yeah. would be the sort of band that had fans that, you know, there are people very evidently still love the motors and bands like that, so yes, this lot should yeah. have exactly the same sort of following, but where maybe are you part guys? Of yeah, maybe part of the problem is, for all that they're of a piece with a lot of Aventis bands they're not necessarily part of a definite movement what you do find is that kind of you know the mod revivalists 
you know, will include bands like, you know, Secret Affair and the Lambrettas and bands that had nothing to do with the whole two-tone thing, but kind of get swept alongside the same kind of nostalgic rush, whereas the Planets are just this slightly odd band from Liverpool that sounded a bit like the Police. There wasn't a scene that they were part of that I can think of, or there's certainly not one that I was aware of. Although, of course, there was, you know, a burgeoning scene in Liverpool at the time that would eventually throw up bands like, the, you know, the Teardrops and the Frankies and an Echo and the Bunnymen and all that but maybe they were nothing to do with that either being part of a scene seems to really help preserve you in the popular consciousness I've no idea why I remember them by the way again this is me rummaging around you know the cracks in the sofa of my memory and it just came up with them for some reason I just thought hey remember that band that did lines well a lot of bands are doing lines in the 80s (laughs) they did a song called lines Okay, we're moving on to your next choice now, which is someone else who made a huge impression on the popular consciousness in 1979, but ultimately meant a little bit more to me than the planet. Sorry, guys. Okay, nearest thing I could get there, that's Peggy Carter in Avengers Endgame, tacitly acknowledging the existence of Captain Britain, because we're actually going to be talking about Marvel's Night Raven. Mitch, I know who this is. How do you explain him? Night Raven, the only thing I ever remember seeing Night Raven in, Hulk comic came out in the late 70s in Britain. It was, some of it I think was actually written and drawn specifically for this edition. Some of it I think was repackaged bits of American Incredible Hulk strips. But it was, I think, very much launched to cash in on the back of the Hulk TV show, although it's not in any way an adaptation of the Hulk TV show. You know, he's called Bruce, not David. The Hulk speaks. So it's not set within the reality of the Hulk TV show, but it definitely sort of seemed to come out in an effort to piggyback on the back of the Hulk TV show. I remember it not running for that long, but I also remember that it had a backup strip in the sort of the back pages and it being incredibly dark when you consider that Hulk comics seem to be very consciously marketed as the kids. You know, certainly kids younger than sort of the obvious readership of 2000 AD, which started around the same kind of time. And in particular, this backup strip, which I remember, I think it was drawn by David Lloyd, who everybody remembers for V for Vendetta. I've now, because I've found a few of them, at the time, I don't think I necessarily noticed that it was set in sort of 1930s gangster movie America. But it was. It was set in sort of, you know, the prohibitionary sort of, you know, untouchables era America. But he's just this masked vigilante who swishes about in a long coat and fedora. Now, that became absolutely standard in the 80s and 90s in comic books for, you know, avenging heroes to swish about in long coats and fedoras. It was quite, you know, radical in the 70s when people were still wearing capes and masks in comic books that he swished about. But he does have a mask in a sort of vague sort of beak shape. And the most memorable thing is also the most chilling thing about him, which is he's got this glove kind of thing with his emblem on the palm of his hand and when he catches bad guys he brands his emblem into their face with this glove in quite graphic manner you know he sort of clamps his hand over their face and there's a big 
caption as these people end up with this raven emblem burned into their flesh. And I remember thinking, wow, this is dark, you know, considering I was about eight years old at the time. And I know that he went on to have a bit more of a continuity in Marvel Comics in general. But I just remember him turning up in just these few editions of Hulk Comic. And also, at the time, I seem to recall there being very, very little dialogue. It was very noir. You know, David Lloyd's great for his big swathes of black covering half the panel with just like little shafts of light picking stuff out. It was very, very noir. Black and white, obviously, because pretty much all British comics were at the time. You know, 2000 AD didn't go to a full colour until I think well into the 90s. So it's black and white. It's very noir. And I seem to recall there being little to no dialogue. And I'm fairly sure in those early editions, anyway, Night Raven himself never says a thing. He's just this shape who beats up bad guys and brands his emblem into their face. Yeah, it was just really, really striking at the time. And I've not really learned that much about it. Again, it's one of those things that it just kind of exists in my memory. But I had a bit of a read up and discovered that he did eventually have a bit more of a continued existence in, in the Marvel Comics universe. But I just remember this being this really strikingly dark little strip to stick in the back of a comic that seemed to be very consciously aimed at like seven and eight year olds. Well, I discovered him in a similar but different way. I mean, one thing to just say is everyone thinks it's an Alan Moore strip. I've even seen newspaper articles that are credited to Alan Moore, but it's Steve Parkhouse. It was Steve Parkhouse yeah. all along right the way through. But for me, I mean, we should really explain Marvel UK. It wasn't just reprints. Like you say, they would jump on what was going on. Like they did the Fantastic Four title when the Fantastic Four cartoon series came out, but they had their own titles as well. Night Raven, I remember, because they had a Daredevil title at one point. Well, you know, you get reprints of the new stuff and the classic stuff and some backup strips who usually original as well and Night Raven was in there as a text story and I didn't right. understand that it was set like you say the Prohibition era because it seemed to be the same sort of world you know where Matt Murdock's hanging around back alleys it seemed to be the same thing and I kind of think this is a bit weird this isn't like what was happening in Daredevil I didn't quite get it really but I remember being intrigued by the fact I didn't get it but apparently he jumped through quite a few titles he was in the Conan the Barbarian UK comic which I never really got to be honest with you in Captain Britain quite a lot which I don't remember because I loved Captain Britain but I don't remember you know I don't associate Night Raven with that title but yeah like you say it was like a huge thing in the UK but like a lot of the UK strips apart from the Bross one who I'm still hoping are going to turn up I want Matt and Luke Matt Luke and Craig let's give him his proper name to be fair should be in the MCU but yeah they had a really quite good I mean I won't go too far into it because I mentioned it in a previous edition of this but a murder mystery strip just trying to hook in new readers for I think it was a late 80s Hulk title oh my god I need to see this is the bra strip online anywhere it's not the cover is but that's all son of a bitch I need to see this I think it was like they brought back Hulk to tie in with the Hulk TV movies which were you know late 80s but yeah there was a bra strip in there alongside the Hulk strip I think it was aimed at you know kind of fast forward age kids if you see well I'm going to assume yeah Yeah. it wasn't going to be like you know Night Raven did not show up in that, yeah, but he has made some appearances mm-hmm. in, in the Vertical was proper Marvel and the American stuff. But the problem is, his continuity clashes a lot with people like Peggy Carter and Nick Fury. And so it's quite often been that, oh, he's from an alternate reality, except he's not. Yeah, I just remember it being, that's probably the first time I'd ever seen David Lloyd's artwork. It's funny, this all ties in with other stuff we're talking about, because a couple of years ago, for Christmas, my sister gave me something she found on eBay, which was the Logan's Run TV 
show annual from whatever one year it was that Logan's Run was on TV. <laughs> and all the strips in that were drawn by David Lloyd. That must have been one of his earliest gigs, I'm guessing. Yeah, I think you're right. I think the Alan Moore confusion probably just stems from the fact that it's David Lloyd and everybody associates those two together. But no, I was never under the impression that it was anything to do with Alan. I mean, I loved it, you know, but obviously I suppose dark and edgy actually ultimately became quite tiresome where comics are concerned. You know, the obsession with everything being dark and edgy actually starts, you know, that way Batman v Superman lies. Back in about, you know, 1978 or when this was, that was actually kind of startling. Well, I remember the tech stories as being quite gruesome in places. Yeah. Actually, you know, as a kid thinking, ew. No, I remember it being pretty violent, certainly. Because again, you know, Hulk comics to tie in with the whole TV show. And, you know, Hulk in the TV show would throw people through walls, but they were always patently not dead when they came through the other side of the wall. There was that whole sort of, I guess you'd call it ITV Saturday Tea Time violence, which was kind of perfected by American TV in the late 70s through the 80s, where, like, in the A-team, where people would, you know, drive jeeps over landmines and the jeep would fly 20 feet in the air in this massive fireball but they would always cut to the guys crawling alive from the wreckage of the jeep they were at pains to point out that nobody's dying here kids you know we are firing at each other with heavy weaponry from 20 yards but nobody's gonna die you know so it's that kind of saturday tea time violence originated with the hulk i guess well moving on to your last choice now and if they ever do do a night raven film i wonder what celebrity they will get to appear in the video for the title song <laughs> good work guys i mean you were really great thanks al sensational hey anyone try the fish tonight that's not so good al not so good al <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> Okay, Al Molinaro from Happy Days there, talking to Weezer at the end of the video for Buddy Holly, which came free with Microsoft Windows 95, which is a whole other story in itself. But it's not the computery post-grunge link we're looking at here, is it, Mitch? What I want to talk about is this is a bit vague, because it's not a specific thing or a specific instance, but it's a thing that started to happen in the 80s. And I've been trying to figure out when this started. It's when recognisable and particularly international nationally recognisable actors start turning up in rock videos. Now, obviously, you had things like British celebs turning up in British rock videos, like Diana Dawes turning up in Prince Charming is the most obvious one that I can think of. And that in and of itself was pretty groundbreaking at the time, because I'm trying to think if there'd been an instance of a British celeb turning up in a British pop video before that, and I can't think of one off the top of my head. The first time I can remember somebody I would regard as a proper movie star turning up in a rock video and I remember seeing this and being quite startled to see him there was Donald Sutherland in Kate Bush's Cloud Busting. Cloud Busting is a fascinating record because it's based on the memoirs of the son of Wilhelm Reich who was to put mildly a mad scientist I did a, a podcast about Wilhelm Reich you know Izzy Lawrence's Z List Dead List about sort of minor historical characters who've been forgotten for one reason or another well I did one about Wilhelm Reich because in much the same way that some of the stuff I've brought up on these shows is interesting because it's not so much faded from the public consciousness has been deliberately removed from the public consciousness. Wilhelm Reich is very much of a piece with that. He was pretty nuts and some of the stuff he was coming out with was toxic to the point of that it actually had to be kind of... <laughs> 
deliberately suppressed rather than just ignored. But he claimed to have invented a rainmaking machine, and Cloudbusting is based on the memoirs of his son about his mad old dad who claimed he'd made a rainmaking machine. And so I'm guessing that's kind of meant to be Wilhelm Reich that Donald Sutherland is playing in a Cloudbusting video. I remember being quite startled to see a proper movie star in a rock video. And then after that... It seemed to happen on a fairly regular basis. I've done the timeline and I've established that Papa Don't Preach comes out after Cloudbusting. And of course, Papa Don't Preach, Papa is played by Danny Aiello. But I'm also thinking to myself, yeah, but was Danny Aiello that much of a movie star at the time? Because he obviously subsequently became one with things like Do the Right Thing and Hudson Hawk. But is he not just a fairly obviously Italian middle-aged actor such as you would cast to play Madonna's dad? You know, I don't know. I mean, what was the first one i mean have you done any research into this when's the earliest one you can find well, proper it, movie star in rock video i have only got back as far as cloud busting as well because one thing i immediately thought was there's bound to be loads that we just don't think of and the first thing i thought of was you know in the video for generals and majors by xtc they've got richard yeah. branson being the general and or major and i thought right, right, bands right. like xtc must have had you know in the kind of diner doors capacity people in, i can't find anything at all there's cloud busting then there's Experiment 4 by Kate Bush the following year. Which has got Richard Vernon and Hugh Laurie and yeah, yeah. Hugh Laurie turns up in a few actually. He, he turns up in things like Walking on Broken yes, Glass yeah, by Annie Lennox. You know, basically, you know. it's that yeah. out the canon or not because he's basically the Prince Regent. He is pretty much, yeah, yeah, exactly. I did actually notice one which I'm not sure whether it counts or not, but what it was is it's somebody I didn't recognise at the time but have subsequently recognised. But again, I'm not sure if he's exactly an international movie star. Do you Remember him by Ultravox. The video consists entirely of people being tempted by Satan. Satan turns up and offers people, you know, offers a politician success or offers a businessman great financial wealth or offers somebody immense romantic success. It's only when I've subsequently seen it, I've realized that Satan is Oliver Tobias. Who was huge at that point. Of the stud fame. Yeah. Well, he was huge in Britain. And I'm thinking, but, but would he have been recognizable internationally or not? So I still don't know whether that trumps Donald Sutherland in cloud busting but now you think nothing of it now rock you know movie stars turn up in rock videos all the time well the next major one I could think of after Kate Bush apparently getting there first was You Can Call Me Al how Chevy many Chase. kids thought Chevy Chase was Paul Simon because <laughs> Chevy Chase wasn't that well known over here at that point unless, no, not really. unless you had the no. video which not everyone did unless you've seen Caddyshack or Caddyshack 2 or Fletch, Fletch. was the other one <laughs> yeah Fletch was the other one but you're right no a lot of the kids will have not known what either Chevy Chase or Paul Simon looked like and that joke would have been completely lost on them they wondered you know who's the short guy looking bored <laughs> the other thing that did happen a lot I think from the 70s onwards which doesn't really count as far as I'm concerned sometimes for the theme song for a big movie the cast would appear in the video or previously the promo film but that's not quite the same because it's been done that's not the quite same thing it's like no, yeah you're not turning up you're not taking on a, a rock video as an acting job it's a bit of just cross promotion like Christoph Lombard turning up in the video for Princes of the Universe well, for example it, you know, it has you know. made me wonder I do genuinely ponder this when 
you got things where you got like that, for example, when you got Nothing Can Stop Us Now by Starship or Spies Like Us or Review to a Kill or yeah. Sweet Freedom, which people forget was from Running Skirt or Goonies. I Arc, remember or Running Skirt. Yeah, yeah. Where that happens, where the artist in the theme song interacts with the cast in character, in costume, on set, is that part of the movie's expanded universe? Did Grant <laughs> really turn off Hollywood toes in Mannequin? <laughs> Yeah, I mean, because that was a whole nother thing was the hit rate, you know, because obviously you've got, you know, Take My Breath Away and Top Gun and, and eventually it became to the point where you couldn't release a major release movie without a tie-in single because the video on MTV was going to sell your movie for you to the point where they were sort of commissioning stuff. Like, you know, obviously, well, they commissioned an entire bloody album off Prince for Batman. That was very much, you know, Warner Brothers' idea was to commission Prince to do a whole album of songs from Batman. And now they can't reissue it. <laughs> and now they can't reissue it. Exactly. Exactly, and but boy, then you end up with the whole thing going into the eighties and nineties of the two soundtrack albums. You know, you get the actual. You know, for example, Batman was one of the first ones. You got the Danny Elfman soundtrack album because it's some of the best movie music ever composed, and you have the Prince album, or you have songs from and inspired by. Well, funnily enough, actually, one where it kind of buried it. We've just alluded to it was the Michael Kamen score for Highlander. I don't think it was ever officially released because all the songs were on Queen's kind of Magic albums. So the songs all came out on the Queen album, but nobody ever, I don't think, I've got a bootleg CD of it somewhere, but Michael Kamen's actual score for Highlander, which was great, I don't think that ever actually officially came out. If you've got all the trouble of recording it, you might want to get your money's worth out of it. But then, you know, back in those days, actually putting a record out was kind of expensive. These days, you can just stick it up on Spotify and if anybody wants it, it's there and if they don't, they don't. But yeah, that was sort of the birth of the age of the dual soundtrack album, the songs from and inspired by and the actual score, you know, on two separate records. But like you say, it's difficult to determine what actually qualifies because one of the first things that occurred to me was Keanu Reeves in the video for Rush Rush by Paul Rabbit. Yes, yeah, Apparently, he's kind of playing James Dean, isn't that he? That was kind of in motion before he really took off, though. Huh, okay. And then you get, you know, all things like, you know, Mickey Rourke turning up in that Enrique Iglesias video not that long ago. And it is, it's fairly standard now. Oh, so, I, I just mean, remembered a really early one that I completely forgot oh, what's, about. Oh, what, what have you just remembered? What? Who tries to arrest Shane McGowan that starts a fairy tale in New York? It's Matt Dillon. It's Matt Dillon, yeah. You're quite right, yeah. So that is a bit... Oh my God, that might even... No, that's 87. That's not before cloudbusting. Just for a minute, I thought that might even be before cloudbusting, but you're quite right. Again, now Matt Dillon, all right, Rumblefish had been out. So yeah, no, he would have been a proper movie star by then. That counts, that counts. Yeah, you're right. The copper arrests Shane McGowan at the beginning of Fairy Tale is Matt Dillon. That's, I've completely forgotten well, about I that. I wonder if the problem is that, you know, at that point, it's changed now. And if you look at any actor on Wikipedia now, you will see if you scroll down, they have a section headed music videos you do think when did that become a thing that was listed alongside their films and TV appearances but in the 80s by and large with the obvious exceptions like Hello by Lionel Richie generally videos for pop songs were mini dramas over here and in America it was mainly live footage and we didn't really come up with many homegrown internationally known stars to speak of at that point no it's 
true. I've just thought of one of somebody who was in a rock video and subsequently became famous, but were not a big deal at the time. Gold by Spandau Ballet. That little gold-painted nymph that Tony Hadley is pursuing around the temple. That's a 16-year-old Sadie Frost. Similarly, it's Courtney Cox yeah. in Dancing in the Dark. Oh, yes, Courtney Cox in Dancing in the Dark. Yeah, absolutely. That was the first thing, first thing anybody really noticed her. The girl that Bruce pulls out the audience in Dancing in the Dark is Courtney Cox. So there's been a few instances of people... Well, I mean, that, if anything, Courtney Cox is an example of somebody getting famous because they were in a rock video. Because she started to get cast in sort of, you know, quite high-profile things immediately after that. Because it's just like, check it out, it's the girl from the Springsteen video. It's probably actually got Masters of the Universe. That's an example of somebody, I think, getting famous through being in a rock video. Oh, I've got a possible, although... Oh, have you got... Go on, go on. It's speculative, but Rick Mayo did a lot of pop videos in the mid-80s. He did. Did he now, do anything would... to potato cloud busting? Because the only fan I can think of is Peter Gunn by the Art of Noise, which, if anyone has never seen that, that is one of the best things Rick's ever done. Oh, it's hilarious. That, I think, was... I could be mistaken. My mind is telling me that was very early 86, which would make it about six months after Peter but Gunn. But did he do anything before that? I don't think that could I be don't the know. first. But again, that's worth pointing out that this is somebody who was a British TV star, because Aid Edmondson's in the video for Sunglasses by Tracy Ullman. Now, that might have been before cloud busting, but again, Aid Edmondson at the time was a British TV star with no kind of international recognition, you know. Now, Keith Marshall is musical anarchy. No, no, they might now say it's the commander of the dreadnought from The Last Jedi, <laughs> but, you know, they might... Tracy Ullman was a great one for the celebrity cameo because, of course, you had Neil Kinnock and Paul McCartney in My Girl and, and They Don't Know. She was a great one for the celebrity cameos and the thing. I mean, McCartney, you know, that's an internationally famous person, but it's not an actor. What was striking about Donald Sutherland is he's not just a sleb. He's not just a kind of rent-a-face. He's, you know, a very legit established movie star turning up in this rock video in 1985. He's still, I think, the first one that I can think of. I can't come up with anything before that. Even Duran Duran didn't have... No, they didn't have, you know... Roger Moore notwithstanding, which as we stopped... Well, he's edited... Again, exactly, we're talking about that. He's being edited in from Beauty to Kill. I don't think he shot anything for the Duran video. And frustratingly, Michael Kane isn't actually in Michael Kane. Michael Kane is not in Michael Nor is Robert De Niro Kane, actually waiting. In Robert De Niro's <laughs> waiting. No, he's not. Yeah, exactly. So even these songs which name check them, they don't actually appear in them. But no, I still, you know, it'd be fascinating if anybody hears this and they can think of an earlier instance of an actual movie star in a rock video than Cloud Busting by Kate Bush, which is sometime in the autumn of 85. Tell you what, I remember seeing it in a cinema. It was shown as, I think, an intermediate feature. I think when I went to see Back to the Future. So that would have been coming up on Christmas 85. Oh, before I go, I'm going to throw something out there. I was talking just recently with a friend of mine and we were talking about, as you and I have discussed, the early appearances of Rick Mayle in various things where he's either credited or uncredited or, you know, has lines or doesn't. So everybody knows he's playing chess in the pub at the beginning of American Werewolf, doesn't actually have any dialogue. I noticed him asleep on a train in the Eye of the Needle, which is Donald Sutherland again. This is all tying together. And obviously, you know, you and I both mentioned him in the Space Helmet in the 54321 video. There's a very early short film called Couples and Robbers in which he plays, I think, one of a pair of newlyweds who I think they break into an empty house 
and essentially squat in it and nick a bunch of stuff and then leave and there's a twist ending but the whole thing is only about 10-15 minutes long and Rick Mail is the male lead in it and this came up in conversation with a friend of mine the other day and I'm thinking where did I see that and again my brain is telling me it was on as a supporting feature in the cinema at a time when people really didn't do supporting features anymore because this obviously would have been about 1982 and also it was a fairly it's not adult in as much as there's no sort of swearing or shagging or blood in it but it was a fairly grown up quite somber mood this thing I remember it's sort of you know not it wasn't a wacky comedy there were a few jokes in it but he was very much in there as a sort of a, an acting capacity rather than you know being full on Rick Mail. and I can't think why I would have seen this movie and again I can find very little about it I just when I remember this I looked it up see if it's got a Wikipedia page it doesn't I think it might have an IMDB listing but I remember specifically it's called Couples and Robbers and I'd love to know why I've seen that film <laughs> I'd love to know why so if anybody knows out there because you know we remember there were still this sort of vestigial supporting features everybody remembers Black Angel with yeah. Empire Strikes Back everybody remembers that because that was basically shot by the crew of Empire Strikes Back on a weekend off essentially wasn't it they ran up to Scotland and made this little medieval fantasy short when they had a bit of time to themselves so that's why it got the support slot for, and there's also for, the uh, for Empire and story of that about it went missing for years and years yes, and years yes, until they Disney acquired again about five years ago. well until Disney acquired the rights to Star Wars and the surrounding catalogue and probably went here you go here's the negative wow you know so for all this idea people have that Disney are hoarding you know things and making them unavailable it doesn't appear to be borne out by science no it's not no so everybody remembers Black Angel and there were still supporting features being shown with movies in the very early 80s and I think this Couples and Robbers was shown as a supporting feature, but I cannot think to what. Might even have been Blade Runner, because I know nobody was there with me. <laughs> and I went to see Blade Runner on my own when it came out at the end of 82. And that would be exactly the right kind of time, since just before Young One Season 1 started. So, yeah, I don't know. I do not know. If anybody knows anything about that movie and what its distribution was, if anybody knows what it was shown as the support to... I I'd love to know why I've seen that movie. And indeed, if it's out there in existence in any shape or form, if it's viewable again, because I can't remember very much about it, except Rick Mail's in it, and it has a neat little twist at the end. Well, if you do know that, please let us know. Also, well, you, you know found Orion! You found Orion, you guys. Yes, yeah. Orion is back. Orion's on YouTube. Yeah. Thank Christ. I thought I was going mad. I thought I'd imagined <laughs> it. You found Orion, you maniacs. Also, who the first actual proper international film star to appear in the video was, we'd like to know. Yes, exactly. But I must just ask, have you ever been in the pop video, apart from your own ones? Uh, not that I'm aware of. Only mine. Do not believe I have. No, and it certainly wouldn't have been in any kind of celebrity cameo capacity because I am not that big a deal. No, I've not been... Have I? You see, now you've said that, that's got me wondering. <laughs> well, if anyone knows that as well, please let us yeah, know. Yeah, Jesus, my <laughs> bloody memory. Right, well, Mitch, it's been brilliant. Thank you. Thank you so much. I'm really enjoying that. Oh, no, 
One by Tim Worthington. The story of comedy at BBC Radio 1 from Kenny Everett to Chris Morris and beyond. More details, timworthington.org.